Tonight, we talk about R.L. Stein guest appearing in a musical and the horrors of cursed theaters and high school relationships with the writers of Goosebumps the Musical. But first, turn out the lights, find a safe hiding place, and fall into haunting season. Good evening, world, and welcome to Haunting Season. A few weeks ago, a rep from Goosebumps the Musical Phantom of the Auditorium reached out to ask if I'd be interested in speaking with the writing team behind the nostalgic play, and I was like, uh, yeah. They even offered me some merch in exchange, which ended up being a tote, some posters, bouncy ball, eyeballs, a mug, a t-shirt from the show. If I use it all at once, I look like an unhinged fan who maybe should explore some other shows to expand my horizons, but not today, internet. Not today. You can see all the stuff I got over on my TikTok, but now, right here, right now, we get to listen to my conversation with Danny Abish and John McClay about how one of our favorite children's horror books magically became a musical, what the road so far has looked like, and the absolutely wonderful original cast recording that I cannot stop listening to. Here's the conversation. So I'm here with the writers of Goosebumps, the musical, Danny and John. Uh, Why don't you guys introduce yourselves and tell me about your involvement in the show? Uh, Sure. I'm John McClay. I'm a playwright. uh, And I wrote the book um, and co-lyrics with Danny for uh, Goosebumps, the musical fan with the auditorium. Uh, And I'm Danny Abosh. And I wrote the music and co-wrote the lyrics with John. Um, and uh, also did the orchestrations and produced the cast album. Amazing. So tell me about where the idea came from to do Goosebumps the Musical. Well, Danny and I have the same agent, um, and so we actually met because of this show. Um, Our agent had a relationship with Scholastic, uh, and my first involvement was she had asked uh, if she thought this might make a good show for the stage, and I thought it would. And there were two theaters, uh, one in Milwaukee and one in Portland, uh, who co-commissioned the first production um, and brought Danny and I together to do this. So we actually met uh, working on this musical. So um, my agent said, hey, I have this other client who's a composer and I think you'd really like him and he's really amazing um, and you two should meet and see if you want to work together. So uh, we did. It was all virtual. And I think, you know, there was, there's that artistic process of maybe uh, vetting each other a little bit. Sure. Where uh, I'm listening to his music and Danny's reading some of my plays. And we were like, oh, we like each other. Oh, this looks promising. Um, I had a long history in adaptation, uh, specifically in some material that um, aims towards middle school and older. Um, so that was a good fit for me. And I'll let Danny talk about his history with, uh, with Goosebumps. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I've been a huge fan uh, since I was a kid, basically, of the series. I grew up with the books and everything. So um, when I, you know, when I got the uh, the inquiry about it, I was just like, yes, immediately. Like, be- yeah. be- honestly, it was be- before I even uh, had uh, had read John's treatment and, and, you know, checked out John's work. And like, it, w- it was sort of a risk because I, I didn't know if, if John was any good yet. It, luckily, it turned out that he was. But 
Uh, I, I was just like, I, you had me at goosebumps. So Yeah, I don't even write music, and I think I would have said yes and just figured it out. <laughs> right? Right. I mean, l- luckily, it happened to be a great uh, collaboration anyway. But um, yeah, I mean, it was just like goosebumps, the musical. Um, totally, I'm in. And actually, it wasn't supposed to be a musical at first. It was, it was originally going to be a play, um, and then we, we kind of con- had to convince them a little bit that that it should be a musical. So the original book Phantom of the Auditorium came out in uh, 1994. I remember seeing it mm-hmm. on the bookshelves in the library as a kid. And and it was one of the hits. It got a reprint in 2011 with only 21 other of the original series of books. So with books like Night of the Living Dummy and The Haunted Mask, Harland, Tower Terror, what was it about Phantom that drew you to choosing that one as the plot for your show? Well, I think, you know, as Danny and I talked in the early stages you, we had to make a choice right whether we um wanted to do just one particular book or make something that was an amalgam or new or you know like the movie does a pretty good job of being like the goosebumps story right where it pulls mm-hmm. in all these different characters from different books and we really decided to make something out of one book and i think i think it was danny who really um felt pretty strongly early about one of the early original books uh really looking at those um, some of them just, you know, are better made for the theater than others. I think one day was like, you know, like here's some ooze that takes over a city. Like that's a little harder to accomplish <laughs> in a play um, than this book, which is, you know, as, aside from the ghost, is essentially about humans, right? Uh, but also for me, uh, it's about theater, right? And you know, if the cliche is to start by writing what you know, this is actually the thing I know the most about of all the things I know is theater. It takes place in a theater where our show is going to take place. Um, So there's that, but I think there's also just that we were going to make a musical and here's this book that uh, draws inspiration from source material that another uh, most famous musical of all time draws its inspiration from. And uh, fan of the opera, of course, and and that's a musical that Danny and I both um, grew up with and loved. So it just seemed to check like an endless number of boxes, really. Yeah, and I mean, in addition to that, I feel like it's also the one that we felt like needed to be a musical more than any of the others. Um, you know, the, there were there were some that were you know great books, but you know we didn't feel like we we could add anything to it by making it a musical. Um, it, like it, it didn't really sing in that way. Um, whereas this one was just kind of screaming to be a musical, I thought, for, you know, because it's again, it's about theater. It takes place in a theater. The characters are actors in a play, you know, so like it, the, everything about it just like th- this was the one where making it a musical could add something new to it that the book uh, and the you know TV episode couldn't bring to it. There was also something very appealing to me that, you know, it was a horror book. You know, it's it's scary. It's spooky. There's real danger in it. But it's also a love story and it's also a mystery um so for me just dramatically right on how it's structured there's just a lot of dynamic levels going on in it that i thought and yeah. i think correctly thought we could really mine for something fun yeah so john you talked about having um experience adapting things before how much of the source material do you feel like you had to stick to how much freedom did you give yourself to alter the story points what was the writing process like sure so i think you know every adaptation is its own story and its own animal right on what it wants to be um i 
try to, as far as plot, right, as far as structure story, um, to really lean into what was already there. I think, you know, what, what we did in adapting, it wasn't so much, um, you know, creating these elaborate original B stories or giving this character a whole new storyline. It was really more about streamlining and cutting, right? That, you know, we're not going to go to Brooke's house and meet her brother, right? And we're not going to spend a lot of time on Zeke's understudy. We're really going to focus on, you know, the six main characters of the story. And that's really what it is. And I think a lot of times when you're adapting a full novel um, into a show, it's more about what you need to keep rather than what you're going to cut. Hmm. Um, but the other part of this process was, uh, and I think what Danny alluded to is, you know, looking at what are these moments that want to be musicalized and what are the moments that want to be scenes um, and sort of tracking that out. And honestly, I felt like that was one of the easiest things. Like, I feel like the songs just screamed off the page at times. I, I think we were pretty faithful to the book. And, and I think that was because we thought the book was, was pretty well written to begin with. You know, it's like, in, in my, my general approach to adaptations is, is that you adapt something because you love it, not because you want to change everything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you, like, you know, in certain places you, you can make necessary changes where you feel like you need to, but all in all, I, I usually am adapting something because I think it's great and I don't think it needs too many changes. The, there, were, there were like two, the, 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 the two things that I think we changed the most in our adaptation is one, um, adding the, uh, the sort of romance between uh, Brooke and Brian. It was sort of barely hinted at in the book, but we, we really kind of fleshed it out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one is, is just the very ending, which is kind of a spoiler, so I, I won't say it, but the, the, uh, the very <laughs> ending of the, of the, of the show and of the book. Yeah. And I'm sure you must've had to add a lot of dialogue because without the, the narration, um, it's, it's all dialogue. It's all tell it's all show. Yeah. And I think what that is, that all just comes from, you know, getting a strong understanding of characters, right? And so if you feel like you really understand who Brooke is and you really understand who Zeke is, then you can just put them in a room and then then that's just us playing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, like the rule of thumb for that is um, I'm willing to expand those moments as long as I'm not doing anything that is, you know, actively contradicting the characters that R.L. Stein created. Yeah. Right? You know, I, 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 I didn't have any interest in creating something that I thought R.L. Stein wouldn't like. You were sharing a little bit before we recorded about uh, people asking him for uh, if he would sanction another one or, or if he was interested <laughs> in having another one. Can you tell that story? Oh, well, so I think Danny maybe knows more about this, but at, at a convention, someone in the audience asked him. It was at the Library uh, of Congress, about, actually. It was. Uh, is that where it was? Yeah, oh, he did that's a amazing. at the Library of Congress last week, and uh, I guess there was someone in the audience that asked a question, um, referencing his role on the on the album. He does like a little cameo role on our album as Principal Stein, um, and so they asked him a question of uh, you know which other Goosebumps uh, book he would want to be a musical. Um, and he said uh, the Haunted Mask was the one that that came to mind because he also thinks it's his best book. So. Makes sense. Mm. I just like that our musical is being discussed at the Library of Congress. Yeah, that's incredible. Did <laughs> that's you ever think cool, that right? would be a thing? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> um, so I do want to talk about the music as well. So, um, Danny, was it daunting at all to think about turning a classic children's horror book into music? 
Like, what was that process of like figuring kind out of. what the sound uh, was? Yeah, I mean, so like, there was a bit that was challenging, and it was also a bit where I'm like, I know exactly what to do with this because um, it, it's like, I mean, I, I guess just because I knew the source material so well from having grown up with it that like I kind of knew what world it lived in already. But as far as finding a sound for it, what what was a little bit of tricky was trying to strike a balance between uh, like a more contemporary sound for some of the young. Uh, the younger characters, um, and then having more of a, you know, classic orchestral, you know, horror film score almost uh, sound, especially in the second half of the show, um, and and then trying to strike that balance in in the same show. I mean, it, it's actually kind of unusual, I would say, that you have, um, you know, really rocking rock songs and uh, orchestral ballads in the same show, um, and that the the score really kind of uh, embodies both worlds. So it was it was a little bit of a of a you know trying to find that the right balance for that, but um, a lot of it honestly really came to me uh, pretty quickly, and just because especially the the instrumentation, um, you know, just like you know the the when you think of when you think of a spooky uh, score, you know, organs, church bells, um, you know that that kind of stuff was just kind of uh, you know inevitable. I thought. Yeah, did did Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of play into some of the themes as well? Um, so I, I mean, the not not really for the most part. The the one sort of homage to Lloyd Webber is in the story of the Phantom, because um, you know the Phantom of the Opera is just so iconic um, that the you know the orchestration is sort of a wink at, at, at that a little bit um, without you know really using any of his music, but um, just kind of an homage to the, the general sound of that. I would say. Um, so I'm a reactionary artist. I've found later in life, actually in the last year or so, that I have uh, something that's called aphantasia. So I had no idea up until I was 36 years old that other people can visualize things. I'm a more auditory person. So like when I read a book, I kind of hear the conversations, but I'm not seeing anything. Um, I, I was just curious to ask in, in writing music, are, are, are you... I guess visualizing is the wrong word, but I don't know what the auditory version of that is. Are, are you hearing things before you write them? Like, how does that process work for you as a as an artist? I mean, yeah, sometimes yes, and and sometimes no. I, I think as far as visualizing it, I mean, I, I'm uh, I'm mostly a, a pianist, so I I do tend to see the keyboard in my mind when I'm writing, and, and even when I'm listening to music. Honestly, I, I tend to see the notes play out on the keyboard, even if they're not um, written for the keyboard, if they're written for other instruments, sometimes as well. Um, but in terms of writing, um, sometimes I know exactly where I'm going and sometimes I don't know where I'm going at all. And I kind of just figure it out as I go. It's a lot of, um, you know, like I'll, I'll sort of just record myself messing around at the piano until I find something that I like. And then I'll go back and develop that a little bit more and a little bit more after that. And, you know, and then eventually you end up with a full song. And then John, same question, like what's what's your creative process like? Well, first I'll say from my point of view on the music, as someone with no composing abilities, and generally as a failed musician in my younger days, <laughs> aren't we all? Um, it all seemed to happen really fast to me. And maybe that's just because it's all impressive to me, everything he does. I don't know how he does it. But, you know, I'd send him a few words, being like, I think this is like a direction for these words, and then you know, a few weeks later, this baller song would come back. That I'm like, oh my god, you did that in like a few. I don't know how that happened. I'm glad so anyway. you thought it was fast. <laughs> well, I also probably didn't seem guess, fast for you because you go in your your writing hole and you don't emerge for like three weeks and you haven't slept or hole? eaten and you've got this piece of art, you know. 
Yeah, um, no, I mean, and part of the reason that it probably seemed fast is because it had to be fast because um, we were under a pretty tight deadline for. I mean, we, we yeah, started writing me too. really in January, and we had a full table read in May that we had to be ready for. So um, the entire show had to be written from January to May, basically. Wow. Yeah. So my process was um, had not a lot to do with music, um, other than maybe some thought of you know, the metrics that maybe go into the poetry of lyrics. But, um, you know, the first thing I, is it's helpful for me to just get a full draft on the page, no matter how flawed and messy and problematic it might be. Sure. Um, it's just helpful for me to look at a whole thing, um, to just identify, uh, you know, where the, where, where it's working and where it's not. And so, uh, because of the the time crunch in some ways we were on i wrote that even more quickly than i normally would um which let it be even more flawed than it normally (laughs) would be but like that's what you have to do uh you you can't be precious about it and you can't have uh thin skin about it so i i did that and so i wrote what was a pretty um faithful adaptation of the book with my best guess on you know eight or 10 ideas for songs at different places with what I would call uh, placeholder lyrics. <laughs> like, you know, they're, they're not great poetry, but you at least get the sense of what the moment is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I sent that off to Danny and he sent back, he's like, yeah, a lot of this does not work, but some <laughs> of it does. And I said, I agree, let's talk. And then that's how that collaborated. And then it just became back and forth for six months on what we thought worked and what we didn't. Um, he and I are really good at just having an egoless conversation about whether a moment works or not, whether it serves the play, whether it feels like goosebumps, you know, um, whether it's a song that is moving the story forward or whether it's just a cute charm song that belongs in a different show, (laughs) you know? And so that was the back and forth of it. Um, I can't speak to like the process of lyrics though, that I, sort of referenced which is i think like i'll send words to danny and i i i've said this a lot actually but i i I send it like it's clay for him to mold right and do what he wants with and so um he's a incredibly talented lyricist um he's good with words not just music so you know i'd get a song back and sometimes uh it would have a lot of the ideas that i started with but maybe different words some of it would have different ideas and different words um you know, and one of the best things about a collaboration is, you know, a few years out, you don't even totally remember who wrote what all the time. I mean, I bet Danny does. He's got this steel <laughs> trap memory. But like for me, I'm like, I don't know. I think Danny probably wrote that, but I don't really care. Um, it's a thing we did together and I really like it. And, you know, credit is plenty of credit for all when it comes out good is what I yeah. say. Yeah, I like that mentality. Um, I think my favorite song because I do have a favorite song and I think that it's because I went to musical theater school and so when I listened to a musical I'm like which one would I want to do yeah I did (laughs) and then after college was like I want to do filmmaking Um, (laughs) (laughs) it was just a it was too much rejection for me I think on a daily basis Mm. the auditioning process I think it takes really thick skin to put yourself out there like that every day I'd rather definitely more money in in film and TV (laughs) (laughs) well I'm in documentary so not really Um, (laughs) but I think my favorite because of that is the babbling brook song 
where Brooke and Brian meet and there's all this awkwardness and the awkwardness is in the music, it's in the lyrics, it's in the performance. What was it like seeing that performed by actors for the first time? It's my favorite song too. Um, and it always has been. And I think interestingly, it's the first song we wrote. Oh, wow. Um, and this is probably not a position I can defend, but it's always felt to me like the best example of collaboration on the album, that moment, because it's scenes and it's story um, and the way the lyrics unfolded. Like that's one where I know some of the words in theirs are mine and I love them. And I know some of the words uh, that I often wrongly get credit for are Danny's. Um, you nice. know, the really, some of the really <laughs> clever stuff is so good. Um, and I love the music. So I, I never get tired of listening to that song. I just, I love it. And it, it's an interesting thing how different theaters have played it on stage. But I feel like pretty routinely, it's one of the most consistently successful theatrical moments in the show, in the productions I've saw, seen. Um, but I'll also offer that the moment the album came out, the story of the Phantom immediately became the favorite song in, for the fans. And if you had asked me before the album what was going to happen, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I mean, that song goes so hard. It's so good. It's so fun on so many levels. It's going to be an anthem for a bunch of people, mm -hmm. right? Like, I see it now, right? But if you'd asked me when the album was coming out, I'm like, well, I think Babbling Brook will probably be the hit off of this. That seems well, like the one that all us, the... If you had asked us when we wrote Story of the Phantom, I mean, back then we were we were not even sure whether it should be in the show. I mean, it... it I, I always kind of felt that it should be, but there there were definitely concerns like, is it too long? Like, do we can we really afford to stop for five minutes and sing the story of the Phantom? Like, so I mean, th there were there were definitely um, concerns about that early on, and in hindsight, I'm very glad we kept it. Oh, I'm so glad we did too. I think one of the concerns we had early on was just a structural question, right? Of like, how many songs can you devote to exposition? Right, and, and it was also in a slightly different place earlier. It was going to be earlier, kind of right after the legend, which I thought was was really the wrong place for it, especially because the legend is another story song, um, in a similar vein. And I also I wanted to get to Emil sooner, and I wanted to get to Brian sooner. Um, and I felt like we couldn't really get to the story of the Phantom until we'd done those two things. In filmmaking, a lot we talk about having to kill your babies, right? You go and you shoot like all these scenes, and and every one of them feels precious. But you have to make these decisions where you cut some of your most beloved moments because of the reasons you're talking about. Were there songs? Were there scenes that you had to cut out that you, you know, in your artist's soul, still feel sad about? Not as much as in other shows. Um, I can actually, honestly. Uh, Danny probably remembers this better, but I only really remember one song that I liked uh, and was pushing for that got cut, but I, I don't regret cutting it. It was mostly just me being funny. It wasn't really, you know, uh, moving the story forward. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there are a couple songs that we, we didn't even really write because we cut them before we wrote them. Um, but of the ones that we did write, there's nothing that I regret cutting. I mean, it's like every everything is like, yeah, that that it was a right it was the right choice to cut it. So the show's been kind of touring um, community theaters, high schools, colleges, conferences for seven years now. Is that right? Something Six. like that. Yeah, 2016 Six. was uh, was the premiere. 
and uh, it's got a couple of shows in 2023 coming up. Um, I've talked to a lot of indie filmmakers, and I'm like I mentioned one myself, and um, I'm well aware that the work never stops. That once your film or musical is complete, there's still so much work to do. Can you talk a little bit about that journey, the journey of the album release in 2021, and getting there at to that milestone, where you are now, why you're on my podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the yeah, we had a, a lot of um, productions for, you know, several years, uh, you know, here and there. And then uh, I, I had always really felt passionately about like, I, I want to record this and make a cast album um, with like, you know, the best Broadway people we can get for it. Um, and so I, I sort of spent, you know, most of, of the pandemic doing that, um, uh, recording it and then editing it and mixing it. Um, and then when we released it, it was really kind of, even though the show was about five years old by that point, it was the first that most of the world had ever heard of this show. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was like, it was new to them. Um, so I feel like really there's, there's everything before the album and then everything after the album is the, the two major phases of the history of this show, because after the album, it was just totally different in terms of, um, you know, all these people that, that suddenly knew about it, that couldn't you know, experience it before. And then, you know, there's a lot, we're getting a lot more, uh, you know, production inquiries also because of that, the, you know, the, it's just the, the album has really elevated it in a, in a new way, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, I, um, cause it had, you know, about a dozen professional productions and it was about to have a pretty fun national or mostly national tour coming up. Um, and then the pandemic that. just derailed everything. Right. Mm -hmm. Not just for us, but for all shows, all live performance. Um, yeah. And then the album came out and next thing, you know, Danny's got two songs uh, charting in the Republic of Malta. <laughs> and we're we're on the we're number one on a chart in Australia and all these things that just don't have like tangible meaning to me. Like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I won't pretend I don't think it's fun. Um. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the arrow for it as far as like larger scale productions is absolutely pointed up. Um, like the interest in it, um, the excitement around it. Um, yeah, I think the other thing that's just happened too is that, you know, people knew about this show if their community produced it. And now you have all these people in communities who know about it, you know, trying to get it produced because they've fallen in love with the album. And it's also been interesting too. I think, you know, Josh, you said something about how, uh, you know, horror and, and music have, you know, some crossovers like in sort of what draws people to them. But I, it's also true. Like we, we've had, we have like separate fandoms for this <laughs> album, right? Like there's a horror fandom that does not actually care about musicals and thought this was a horrible idea. <laughs> and then listen to it and we're like, Oh, I, what i like it that's shocking to me but i like this this is good and then you have musical fans um who may or may not like horror but right you know the whole the whole beetlejuice fandom came over at one point mm. right and but then also people who just like phantom or people who just like you know cool you know sort of contemporary musicals so i don't know yeah, I it's been we'll, a it's been we'll a journey i'll say that keep hearing over and over again is like i can't believe the goosebumps musical is actually good <laughs> yeah. As if people don't expect it to be good. Or but 
Well, because, you, you know, know, like a, the first thing you hear is like they make Goosebumps the musical and we're in the age of like remakes, you know, and sure. and yeah. all of our favorite films are being turned into either good or bad, you know, and it's a crapshoot. Right. So um, right. and, and then, goodness knows we've all seen, you know, too many musicals based on big properties that have not turned out to be very good. So I, yeah. I, I do get the skepticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Point. Like I loved Shrek, um, but I did not expect it to be good when I was going to it. You know, I was like, oh, all my friends want me to go see Shrek. And I ended up having a blast because it's just awesome in a musical form. Um, and also the, you know, the, John played Shrek at one point. Oh, really? It's true. I did for a, a regional theater, uh, first stage in Milwaukee, which actually was one of the theaters that, uh, commissioned goosebumps. And, um, I had not heard it when the theater had decided to do it. Um, and as the big, singing guy of Scottish origins in the theater. They were like, "Why are you going to play Shrek? I'm like, I don't know. It sounds like a real bad idea to me. Cause I loved the movie. I, my, mm-hmm. my, my oldest kid and I wore that movie out and I just thought it's cause I had this imagine like, are they just going to put all those pops on? Is this like a jukebox musical with like, am I missing all star? I don't want to do song. that. <laughs> um, but it's actually amazing, you know, and the book and lyrics for that is David Lindsay Abair. Like that he's an amazing playwright and those lyrics are so clever. I, I I love Shrek too. So but I think what you said, Josh, is right, is that um you know, you take one property and turn it into a musical, it's not necessarily gonna be good or bad. You know, or one genre, right? So you can turn a book into a musical. You can turn a movie into a musical. And if you get the right people and the right idea, it'll be great. And if you don't, it won't. Yeah. And I would also say if, if this is just my belief, but if the people creating it are doing it because it's a popular money grab and not because they think it's going to be a great show, that will appear on stage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you feel, because you were kind of... Um, brought it it wasn't your original idea to make goosebumps musical your it was brought to you right so were were you worried that there was going to be any sort of like you know hands controlling uh you know the marionettes of the writers at all always i mean so i've adapted a lot of things for a lot of different writers and every experience has been a unique relationship so Anytime you're going into a process where someone has any level of oversight, <laughs> right? It it's worrisome at least. Um, but having said that, uh, I think the the final product that we ended up with was the one that we wanted, right? So, in retrospect, it you know it worked, it worked out, out but it's always concerning. We've mentioned the word horror a couple of times. I want to know why uh, you think it's important to allow interested kids to explore the darker side of life through things like Goosebumps or, you know, scary stories to tell in the dark. Well, I think the real world is pretty scary, right? Um, To start with. And so I think, you know, fictional horror is a great safe way to engage that Mm -hmm. and manage that and actually find enjoyment in that. Um, That's my sort of you know, dime store psychology opinion about it, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. I mean, Danny, yeah, you, really- you, you, you spent your childhood immersed in horror. Well, I mean, that's sort of my answer is that like, I, I think because I was that kid, I get, you know, why a, a kid would, would be, you know, would gravitate towards that kind of material. And, and also like I, to me, it, it would never occur to me to not 
let a kid uh, explore horror. You know, it, 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 of course, you know, if that's what they're interested in, of course you should let them read Goosebumps books, right? I mean, I think that's a great point, too. It's like, it's letting not just young people, but all people, like, let them self direct what they want to enjoy. And, you know, one of the things about horror is uh, it just affects different people in different ways. And for some people, it's one of the true joys of humanity, <laughs> right? And they just process that experience. Um, and I'm also lumping horror into just one big category, which, of course, it's not, right? There's a million different ways that it manifests itself. Because um, I like some horror a lot, and some I have I can't do. Well, what right? kind of ones do you like? Uh, so when I was really little, I, I was not into, I didn't read a lot of scary books. I think when I was in high school, I discovered uh, evil dead two. Mm -hmm. And that was instantly one of my favorite things I'd ever seen. Like the whole Ash evil dead stuff. Um, but like, I, I, I have told Danny this, I've always had, um, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but like, a, a special place in my heart for all things vampires oh yeah uh, there's nothing about vampires that ever frightens me <laughs> i'm always rooting for the vampire mm -hmm. right um <laughs> i i love the history of it i love the sort of romantic quality of immortality of it um do you have a favorite vampire film into it. like so i love all of that stuff too um and i love thrillers right and i love you know good versus evil i like religious horror um, though I went to Catholic school, so religious horror is like actually scary to me. Same. The exorcism movies are, it's there's a terrifying. new one coming out on Thursday. I'm terrified um, to go. <laughs> and the ones that I can't do, uh, and this I think comes from seeing some movies when I was little. I think when I was little, I saw, I don't think this is a very good movie, but it was called The Hitcher. Do you know that movie? It's more of a thriller, right? Where uh, um, C. Thomas Howell hitchhikes and it, this guy, uh, Rutger Hauer, stalks him for the next two hours. <laughs> and it was this kind of movie where I think is popular now, right? Where you've, you've got this uh, sort of supernatural bad person that will never be killed, ever. Mm -hmm. You'll never win. No matter what happens, there's going to be a sequel and they'll just kill you again. <laughs> like that for me is hard. Like I need... I like a story where I win. You know, we're going to put a stake in the heart at the end, and then it's going to be over. Mm -hmm. hmm. Right? But the ongoing eternal horror is harder for me. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just talking to my wife last night about the ending of The Mist, and I immediately, she came up on the TV as we were finding a movie last night, and I was like, oh, my God, that has the greatest ending of all time. And almost at the exact same time, she was like, That's, uh, that movie has the worst ending of all time. <laughs> um, and I love that it can be, like, almost every horror movie can be a conversation piece. That's been my funnest thing about uh, talking about it online is that no matter what your opinion is of a movie in the horror genre, there are people from both sides fighting about it. And I, it's just so much fun as long as everybody's like, you know, being nice. Um, Danny, what about you? You're, you have a deeper connection to horror. It sounds like, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a deeper connection to horror, but, um, I definitely, you know, love horror. And, uh, I, I would say like, I, I, for me, I don't need a, a happy ending so much. Um, like John, but I, I would, I, what I do need is a story. Like I, I, I don't gravitate towards the kind of horror that only relies on jump scares. You know, like it, it's for me that there has to be some kind of psychological component, mystery component to it. 
like I, I want to be invested in the characters and the story, you know, more than just like, uh, you know, gags. Um, so I, I especially would say like, um, like thriller horror kind of crossover is, mm-hmm. is kind of where I live. Um, any, anything like psychological horror or psychological thriller. So I mean, I'm with John that. Like, Dead. Yeah. Well, like good writing. Right. And I'm not saying yeah. evil dead is yeah. a lot of good writing, but it's got, it's got sort of clever humor, right? There's, I feel like there's only like 10 lines in that movie, evil dead too. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I would agree with Danny. Like I want a great writer over a really great, you know, blood and gore effects person. Yeah, I think, uh, wasn't it Sam Raimi, I think, said about Evil Dead 2, we weren't trying to make a good horror movie, we were trying to make a good movie. And that's why that's why it stands the test of time, is because they were just trying to be really, really good at their craft and make something truly entertaining. Um, so John had Evil Dead 2, but Danny, was there like a um, like a gateway horror film for you when you were a kid? Um, I, I would say probably Silence of the Lambs, um, which, I, even though I wasn't really allowed to see it as a kid i I, I did at a friend's house and i was like oh man and then we watched all the other hannibal lecter movies and um so i I would say that was that was probably the one um but like another one that was pretty influential was seven i don't know if you even consider that horror it might be more of a i would but yeah um, i would just because it's it has that um like that feeling of disgust and revulsion you know yeah i i loved that one especially because again there's that you know that psychological mystery component to it that you know it's it's a story it it makes you think um in a you know in addition i think that's interesting because i hadn't really thought of those as horror films because i love them um I spent my 20s reading every book about some FBI person chasing some serial killer. Right. Just wore out all those books. All right. Then I love horror. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think they do fit the genre. Um, but it's like you said, there are so many subgenres that it, it's way over on this side where like um, average adults might watch it, but they might be the same people who say, oh, I hate horror movies. I think it's a good way to put it. Outside of entertainment, have either of you ever had any paranormal experiences in your life? Anything out of the ordinary? Well, I have one, but I I don't know. I'll just tell you this story. And you can decide what you think of it. Because I don't know what I think of it. <laughs> they all start this way, too. All I right, love it. So my, uh, I said I went to Catholic school, but I uh, just went to it as a school. I wasn't Catholic. But my grandmother was a devout, devout Catholic. <laughs> And she used to come stay at our house um, and like devout like uh, multiple rosaries a day, if you know that process, like would do the rosary twice a day. Mm-hmm. So there are always these plastic rosaries everywhere. Anyway, she would stay on this pullout couch in our study when she'd come to visit. Anyway, she got older. She couldn't travel and she stopped visiting. And, you know, another decade went by. Um, and I went up to college and I got my first apartment in Chicago and I didn't have any furniture. So this pullout couch that I always used to... Uh, that she used to stay on, went into, uh, I took it with me to this apartment in Chicago. Um, you know, and I opened and closed that thing, you know, a hundred times. So anyway, one day I open it up and as I opened up, this rosary pops out of it. And I'm like, that's weird. Like I haven't, you know, why is this only happening now? I didn't do anything differently. Um, and anyway, so that was no big deal. But then three hours later, my mom called and said, Hey, your grandmother died three hours ago. No, I knew it. Whoa. I didn't know that story. Wow. And I'm not That's someone wild. who generally goes into all that. I'm 
pretty scientific about my views of all things. But that's just been this one thing. I'm like, I do not have an explanation for that at all. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Yeah, I don't know if I have anything quite as clear as that because I've been on a few ghost hunts with some uh, paranormal investigation teams to just have the experience and and there were definitely moments but I the, the further I get away from it the more I'm like well I was really tired it was three o'clock in the morning we were all sharing this energy and like we wanted something to happen so um, in the moment it felt like really scary and like there's definitely something here and then the you know the more I think about it but it, it didn't have that personal connection for me um, the closest thing I have to that was a just a really really vivid dream of my grandfather coming and visiting me and sitting in a field and he was wearing his bomber jacket from world war ii and like talking to me and i woke up and um it was it was a couple of weeks after he had died but it was so vivid that i had to like reprocess his death again um because it felt you know so real I don't know, um, but I didn't find a rosary. What about you, Danny? Anything like that? Anything? Uh... I mean, nothing like that. But uh, <laughs> I mean, no. I, I would say in general, I, I have not had any like really supernatural experiences. I, I am like open to the possibility, but um, it's not something that I've really experienced. The, the one thing that comes to mind, and this is a little bit silly, but is uh, actually when we were doing the first production of Goosebumps um, in Milwaukee. Um, so I'm, I'm backstage eating my lunch in the green room one day and, uh, I look in the mirror and there's a face that I know is not there. And I look around, I, I look, you know, behind me to check and it's not there in real life, but I look again in the mirror and it's there. Um, and, uh, I'm pretty sure it's just an optical illusion. I actually, I took a picture of it. I can send you. Um, or actually I think it's on my Instagram, but I can send it to you because you can see it clearly in the picture that like, it's not there in real life and it is there in the mirror and you, you kind of can't totally make out what it is, but I'm it sorry, really looks I'm on like Danny's Instagram now. Um, and, and like, of course, like, <laughs> uh, and like, you know, because we're doing a show about a theater ghost, like it, it was just like a little bit too like, you know, on the nose spooky. Um, yeah. that, that's the one thing that comes to mind, you know? I don't have anything as crazy as John's story. That's so fun. Did you have to leave the room? I, well, what I did is I called the entire cast over to come see and make sure that I wasn't imagining it. And they all saw it too. They all saw it too. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. I love that. Yeah. I wouldn't be. Yeah. I'd probably do the same. I'd call people in and then I'd never. Go oh my room God. I'm looking at it. <laughs> yeah. Like the reflection by the, like the paper towel. Just, oh my God. Yeah. Were you not there that day? I thought, I thought you had seen this. Well, I probably just made fun of you and said it was nothing and walked away and then never thought of it again. But now I'm looking at this picture and I'm a little freaked out by it. Probably. <laughs> Basically, John and I are broken Zeke, where I am broken. He is very much Zeke. Um, so he, he's he's very much the, the, the kind that would just make fun of me for thinking that was scary, but then actually be scary. Yeah, that tracks. private. I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm um, kind of at the end of my questions here. Is there anything like that we haven't covered uh, as far as the musical that you want to share that you want people to do? Go listen to the well, album. It's on every streaming like platform. So, yes, go listen to the album. Um, but also GoosebumpsTheMusical.com uh, is a ton of information, especially for people who um, traffic in the worlds that they might want to produce it. Um, that's a good place to start. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I don't know beyond that. Danny, what do you got? Yeah, no, I mean, definitely listen to the album. I mean, I, I think um, the album is, is I, I feel like it, it's like the best 
you know, representation of like what we feel like this show is. Um, you know, it's always great to see live production too, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like the album is like the, the one, like, you know, this is, is, you know, the definitive, uh, Goosebumps the musical, at least for my, in my opinion, but yeah, I would, I would, you know, check out the album, check out our website, social media pages, um, tell your friends. Cause that's really just how, you know, how we spread. Yeah, the I word. mean, the most common thing um, I see on the internet related to our show is how did I never hear about this? It's like, we tried. <laughs> We really tried. We're, we're trying really hard. It's just, it's just, it's really tough. Well, but, I mean, I, one thing uh, that I have taken heart in is, is that there are so many, um, you know, just adults that are, that are loving it, you know, just as much as, as kids and, you know, everyone, everything in between. Um, Cause you know, I, I feel like for a while that the show was sort of pigeonholed as like, this is for kids, this is for children. And I, I've never felt that way about it personally. I, I think it, it's really the kind of thing that, that an adult can enjoy just as much, if not more. Uh, than than kids and so and I I think that's been sort of proven out here with with all of the um you know the adult fans that have been loving the album so that's that's been something that I've been pretty happy about yeah I can certainly attest to that I I listened to the whole album straight through this morning and instantly loved it and was picking favorite songs and um you guys also shared with me a, a pretty um, detailed breakdown of Act One and Act Two that I read, and now I'm just dying to see it. So I'm going to be keeping my eye out for it coming to California at some point, or in, in my travels in New York, or wherever it is that I end up getting a chance to actually see this thing. Because I do think it has it has everything. You know, it's kid friendly, but it's also got all the nostalgia from everything that I remember of Goosebumps. Uh, it just you know, oh, gave me goosebumps. Uh, <laughs> Well, I want to thank you both for being on the show today. And um, yeah, I, I hope that this episode and my uh, my TikTok video that I'll do in conjunction hopefully gets a, a bunch of new ears on this because it's worth it. Yeah, thank yeah, you, totally. Josh. Thank you so much pleasure. for having us. Hello, Twisted Humans. Do you find yourself wanting to know more about the latest murder, conspiracy, cult, or haunting? Then this is the podcast for you. In 1952, there was a record high of UFOs reported. 1,500 sightings. There has been evidence of human sacrifice, devil worship, and it is haunted by more spirits than can be counted. A family of two adults and two kids reportedly saw a giant flying thing with glowing red eyes. And meanwhile, the family's nanny that helped Veronica to care for her and Lucian's children was found bludgeoned to death in the basement of their family home. I'm Alicia. And I'm Sierra. And this is Twisted and Uncorked. If you like these conversations and you want to hear more, the most helpful thing you can do is subscribe to Haunting Season right here where you're listening now. If you have time to write a review, that helps with the ranking too, big time. If you want to watch my horror movie reviews and other generally spooky short form content, you can follow Haunting Season on TikTok. Every follow gets me closer and closer to being able to do these big things that are going on in my head that I just cannot wait to show you. I have such sights to show you. It's all for you. And one last thing, if you're interested in hearing my original scary stories with 360 degree soundscapes, it's my favorite thing that I do. It's the closest thing to a Haunting Season movie so far. You can find them in season one of the podcast or on YouTube under a name you're never going to guess in a million years. I, I say it every time. It's haunting season. It's all haunting season. Links, of course, in the show notes. 
Haunting Season and Horror Talk were created by me, Joshua Sterling Bragg. It's a joint production with Believe Limited and Matt Gillen. The show's edited by Todd Jackson with support from Kafer Meal and is produced by Keith Cornerlock. All the music in the show was created for Haunting Season by the Northern Synth Lord, North Innsbruck. Their music rocks. It's synthy and amazing. It's linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Come back next time because we're more likely to survive if we stick together. <laughs> <laughs>